This is Podbridge, connecting the Middle East, the United States, and the world. Welcome to Podbridge, the podcast that looks at what is unexpected, overlooked, and significant in the rapidly changing relationship between the Middle East, the United States, and the world. Now, we don't often see history transform before our very eyes. A year ago, a series of agreements between Israel and the leading nations of the Arab world unleashed just such a transformation. On September 15, 2020, the Abraham Accords were signed between the United Arab Emirates, Israel, and the United States. An historic afternoon at the White House as two Arab nations signed peace deals with Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and foreign ministers from both the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain signed agreements known as the Abraham Accords to normalize relations with Israel. Before, normalization of relations between Israel and many Arab nations was unimaginable. Within months of the first signing, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco also joined the Accords. Well, since then, the Accords have promoted people-to-people connections, mutual economic benefits, and shared values. Concrete results have included direct flights, more than $675 million in bilateral UAE-Israel trade, hundreds of thousands of new tourists, opening of embassies and exchange of ambassadors, agreements on health, climate change, technology, energy, culture, water, and food security. But this is just the start. A RAND Corporation study forecasts the region-wide benefits of the Accords at $1 trillion in their first decade. I thought about it, and there's no way two small countries can reach a trade relationship of a trillion dollars where it doesn't spill over, where it doesn't benefit Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt, where it doesn't open tech transfer, where it doesn't create jobs. Now, recently, to commemorate the first anniversary of the signing of the Accords and to discuss their significance, an event was held at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., hosted by their Middle East program. We're fortunate to be able to share some highlights of that event and its distinguished participants. The head of the Wilson Center, Ambassador Mark Green, framed the discussion and was then followed by comments from U.S. Representative Ted Deutsch. Roughly a year ago, the United Arab Emirates and Kingdom of Bahrain became the first two Arab Gulf countries in 26 years to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. The Abraham Accords were signed by President Trump at uh, White House ceremony on September 15, 2020. Later that year, two other key countries in the region followed suit, Sudan and Morocco raising the number of Arab states with former diplomatic ties to Israel from two to six. The Abraham Accords will be instrumental in strengthening diplomatic ties, but they can also boost cultural and economic ties as well. Increasing trade and investment in each each other's countries means giving each other a stake in the future, a shared future of prosperity and shared opportunity, and not just for the region, As the former administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, I would suggest that the Accords could also boost development prospects in other regions of the world. In my USAID days, we signed MOUs with Israel and the UAE to take advantage of their expertise and influence, the advantage that they have in many parts of the world, not only in the Middle East, but in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. On the security front, we are all aware of our naval base hosted by Bahrain, both strategically important, but also a a symbol of our enduring partnership and friendship with the kingdom. 
All of this is very much in line with the Accords and the language that calls for a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and all around the world. And so I want to thank our guests for being here today. And it is now my honor to welcome and introduce another good friend and former House colleague, Congressman Ted Deutsch. As you know, Ted is the chairman of the Middle East, North Africa, and Global Town, uh, Terrorism Subcommittee of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Chairman, it's great to have you here today, and please, we invite you to make some remarks. We're here, it is just about one year ago uh, that many of us gathered at the White House for the historic signing of the Abraham Accords, which was truly a day many of us had envisioned for decades, but couldn't really imagine it coming to fruition in the, in the near term. These historic accords, followed by agreements with Morocco and Sudan, have fundamentally changed the region in the most positive of ways. It is not often in Washington these days that there is broad bipartisan support for an initiative among members of Congress and among successive administrations of differing parties. In fact, in Congress, we have legislation pending with now over 200 bipartisan co-sponsors that would acknowledge the State Department's uh, positive statements and would require the State Department to seek to build upon the current normalization agreements and report on ways to further enhance the existing agreements. Next, let's listen to an excerpt from the panel hosted by Ambassador Jim Jeffries, veteran U.S. diplomat and head of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center and featuring UAE Ambassador Youssef Al-Oteba, Ambassador of Bahrain to the U.S., Sheikh Abdullah bin Rashid Al-Khalifa, and Benjamin Krasna, Deputy Head of Mission of the Embassy of Israel in the U.S. Uh, the first question to uh, uh, Ambassador Youssef Al-Oteba and then to Ambassador uh, Sheikh Abdullah uh, Al-Khalifa, and that is, uh, Ambassador Erdin talked about after the vows, after the ceremonies are over, you need to flesh out these accords with real developments. I was, and he gave us a few. I was particularly taken by the first Israeli baby born in the Emiratis. Congratulations. But from the standpoint of your leadership, what are the key things that have changed in the last year? I'll start with you, Yusuf. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Ambassador Green. Uh, first of all, congratulations to the couple that had the baby, not, not to us. But <laughs> uh, uh, <Bad>, actually. <laughs> um, I think the thing that has changed the most is people's understandings, and it's hard to measure. It's easy to measure trade. It's easy to measure, you know, uh, investments or deals or how many flights and how many tourists. It's hard to explain how people's mindsets have shifted. It's easier to observe stories. Like I, when I saw, when I started seeing Orthodox Jewish weddings taking place in Dubai during COVID, during uh, a very difficult time socially in a country that most of these people have never been. They decided to pack up, take their families, and have a wedding in this place that they've only seen on TV or on the Internet. That's the biggest change I've envisioned, or I've seen. Um, I think about two or three months in, post the uh, signing, of, signing ceremony on September 15th, I find out that our Emirates Diplomatic Academy, where our young diplomats get trained, are actually teaching Hebrew. And it's actually a very popular decision or a very popular choice. These are the things that I think will fundamentally change our region. But if you want to go back to the economics and the business and the data points, uh, I was coming in here this morning and I read an article on Bloomberg that said our minister of economy who's in town uh, told a Bloomberg reporter that he envisions over 10 years that bilateral trade and investment between the UAE and Israel 
will reach a trillion dollars. So I thought he made a mistake, and I thought he meant a billion dollars. I reread the article. I was like, no, he didn't make a mistake. He actually said a trillion dollars. I thought about it, and there's no way two small countries can reach a trade relationship of a trillion dollars where it doesn't spill over, where it doesn't benefit Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt, where it doesn't open tech transfer, where it doesn't create jobs. So I think this is a very big net positive, whether it's on the social and human to people-to-people human interactions and understanding, or on data, trade, and jobs, and business, and investments that are ultimately going to be a benefit for the region. So yes, it's only a year in, but every indicator and just in just human interactions or business dealings, I think it's we're just skimming the surface. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Again, um, thank you very much for having for having me here. Uh, and I second what uh, my colleague Ambassador Ateba just said. Uh, obviously, the shift in mindset is probably the biggest uh, thing that we are witnessing within the communities today. Uh, the measurables are very important because they're KPIs. They put us on track. Uh, obviously, we've seen um, trade grow, uh, bilateral relations fostered, uh, people-to-people relationships being established and, and growing with time. Uh, we've also seen a new me- medium that's been created for dialogue, for understanding, which is very important for uh, a region that has been volatile in the past. Uh, the the exchange of ambassadors is very significant. I come from a country uh, where, yes, we do have a lot of positive relationships with many countries around the world, but that doesn't mean that we have representation. Mm-hmm. Um, take, for example, myself. Um, I'm a, 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 I represent my country in three other countries, uh, one of them being a, a, a G8 country. Uh, but here we are with representation in Israel and vice versa, which means that Uh, Our leaders do want to take it to the next phase. It means that when we came into this, we came into this with the mindset that we need a war and peace strategy that's put in place to grow with time. And um, honestly speaking, this is uh, probably the biggest breakthrough between Arabs and Jews in the past 25 years. I think that, uh, yes, it does take us a step closer to uh, comprehensive peace in the region. And uh, I think it also sets an example for others within the region itself. I mean, here you have peace that's being achieved between Arabs and Jews that sets a very good foundation for peace that can be developed by others that share the region, whether they're Persians, Turks, Kurds, etc. So that's why I think the, uh, the accords are very important for the region as a whole, and we need to make it a success. Thank you very much. And we're sure that uh, the fact that you're representing multiple G8 nations is more a reflection of the kingdom's uh, uh, confidence in you than a shortage of Bahraini diplomats. But uh, over to you, Benjamin Krasna. Um, the uh, basic principles document talks in general terms, as I said, of peace, security, prosperity, and uh, it criticizes extremism and uh, conflict, but it doesn't get specific. But let's get a little bit more specific here. Uh, The geostrategic situation within which it has developed over the last year, particularly the U.S.-Iranian relationship, what impact does it have on the Accords and what impact does the Accords have on it? And this is, of course, something I would really be delighted if our other two participants could uh, uh, chime in on. Please, over to you. Thank you very much, Ambassador and Ambassador Green, for hosting us. 
Um, I, I think that it shows the changing re- geographic and geopolitical um, realities of the region. Um, understanding what can be done as a partnership, what can be done um, together, um, what can be done as you start building up confidence and trust, which, to be fair, had existed for a long time before um, 15th of September. Um, there was always, there had been for a long time private discussions. There had been for a, uh, it's now known for a while, the representatives of the foreign ministry who had been in these countries and there had been ongoing dialogue, obviously. Um, the big change, of course, was bringing it out into the open um, and creating what now is, seems so normal. Um, if we talked, or you were saying that someone had er, said to me earlier that it's hard to believe it's been a year, and I say, well, it's hard to believe that it's only been a year. I said, because so much has, has been achieved that sometimes it would take much, much longer. I think what we're looking also, though, obviously, is a sharing in the similar, of similar strategic concerns. You speak about the extremism, of course. You, sing, you speak about fanaticism and how that, how that changes um, and how really that impacts how much more we can get by working together. Um, you know, uh, we look obviously at Iran, okay, and we see the strategic concern that I think all of us share. Um, different geography, maybe sometimes on different, on different viewpoints, but understanding um, that to provide defense Against that, there's more to be benefit. There's more benefit to be gained by working together, um, by sharing concerns, by sharing information, by understanding what we're dealing with. Not only there, um, and there obviously there are other sources in the region, and uh, obviously um, looking at the role of other fanatic organizations like ISIS and why that has to be a concern. What are the technologies that we have to be facing together today? Uh, we've seen unfortunately examples with the dangers of UAV technology. We've seen, we obviously have understand more and more about the danger of, of cyber technology. And we as a world leader in cyber and cybersecurity, understanding how that is something that can be shared and so that should be a shared concern. And I think that's something that we have seen come more in the open. I think something that has tremendous potential so that we should all build an area where if we don't have um, the stability and the security in the same sense, it becomes much harder to build much of what we're discussing. I mean, what's remarkable is when you hear, and I share uh, Ambassador Oteba talk about the potential. Well, the one billion were probably there already next year. Yeah. This year was seven hundred million, and and of course you're you've already invested now. I believe about five hundred million in some of our gas infrastructure, yeah. which is a tremendous, tremendous development. That's hard. That's hard to uh, imagine just a just a year ago. But as we look, you need to also be able to build confidence for the investment. To be confident in the, in the investment environment and the security becomes such a major uh, point of how we can best realize it. And I think that's why we are all so committed to working together also to address the threats and the concerns. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Erdogan, in his comments, uh, specifically mentioned uh, the accords and the spirit of them eventually expanding to bring in Palestinian youth. One of the criticisms that uh, some people here in America and elsewhere uh, raised concerning the Accords a year ago was that it put the Israeli-Palestinian question on a sidetrack compared to other issues in the region. Uh, how do all of you see uh, the Accords perhaps helping uh, advance that particular portfolio? So I still think that the two-state solution is the only game in town. Mm-hmm. I don't see, no matter how much time you spend thinking about this and dealing with this issue, that there's no long-term solution other than the two-state solution. But let's backtrack a little behind a year ago 
And if we had not successfully reached the Abraham Accords, what would have happened? Israel would have probably annexed part of the Palestinian territories. The two-state solution would be dead. And so I don't think having, if, if the Abraham Accords had not happened, we would not be talking about a potential two-state solution. We'll be very blunt. I think we salvaged the two-state solution. I think it's very important for the two parties to decide that this is the ultimate game plan. It's not for us. But I also remind you, when Egypt made peace with Israel, there were no concessions for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. When Jordan made peace with Israel, there were no concessions for the Palestinians. This is probably the biggest concession that was reached for the Palestinian cause in the last 25, 25 years. Um, I hope, I hope, I think we are in a very broad group where we are continuously advocating for the two-state solution. And for those who were saying that the Abraham Accords were not durable or did not serve the Palestinians, I can tell you, and I think uh, DCM understands, that my foreign minister spoke with Foreign Minister Lapid six times, uh, sorry, with uh, Foreign Minister Ashkenazi six times during the Gaza operation. And at every single phone call, we urged Israel to accept the Egyptian uh, uh, ceasefire proposal. So I think the Abraham Accords can be helpful, can be useful, can provide words of wisdom and advice, but ultimately it's going to come to the two states to decide that the two-state solution is in their interest, not just ours. Thank you very much. Ambassador Khalifa. Yeah, I mean, again, on, on many occasions, um, Bahrain has uh, publicly showed the commitment to building a long-lasting peace in the region. When it comes to the Palestinian-Israeli issue, we've been committed to supporting a viable and an independent Palestinian state. We've stated it from um, the, the South Lawn when our foreign minister was here. Uh, we do believe in a, a two-state solution. Um, the Palestinians have the right to their state like the Israelis have the right uh, to their state. Um, and I think what uh, we're doing here is we have created that medium. We know that we will uh, have challenges down the road. Uh, there will be rough patches, but when it gets tough, um, there are those uh, communication channels that are open uh, that diffuse the situation. And when you compare what happened um, in Gaza, from Gaza, uh, to what happened 2014, there's a, a big difference in the way that uh, casualties, uh, a lot less casualties than before. Timing was much shorter. Uh, and so I think that there was uh, an important role for countries in the courts uh, that played a significant um, uh, role in reducing tensions. Uh, and again, um, it's important for us to uh, showcase success. Uh, for us uh, in Bahrain, we've been a crossroads of coexistence for many, many uh, decades. And and uh, we've uh, been able to make it work. So um, are there ways in which um, countries and leaders can foster uh, tolerance and openness? Yes, there are. And those examples need to be highlighted and showcased to, to people in the region to showcase success and to instill hope within those communities. Thank you very much. Uh, DCM Krasna. Uh, what steps uh, within the framework of the Abraham Accords do you think Israel can take to uh, move towards the vision of Ambassador Erdogan of someday bringing in Palestinian youth into this whole construct? Thank you. Well, as, as you know, and Ambassador Erdogan spoke, we're always hopeful. 
we're always prepared to engage and to promote the peace. I think it is vital for our interests, um, and I think it is something that also the Palestinian young people that you speak of, they certainly deserve. I think when they look at what what was achieved last year historically and in previous years, obviously, with Jordan, with Egypt, they see that there's an alternative. I think that's one of the most important messages that comes out from the Abraham Accords is understanding that it's not one or the other. And to understand that you have potential to build peace, that there does not have to be a given um, animosity between a Jew and an Arab or a Muslim and a Jew. It doesn't have to be. There, we have a possibility here of prosperity, of mutual coexistence, of tolerance um, that was spoken about in terms of the, the kosher meals that are now available in Dubai and in, and in Manama. And we saw the, uh, the bar mitzvah celebration. And, um, you know, it should be understood that there's a benefit that may be passing them by. And it doesn't have to, that they can come on board. I think that's the message that we hope that these young people see and reach out in terms of their, their leadership. So we're prepared, and Minister Lapid spoke about it just yesterday in, in, in Israel, working more on promoting uh, economic cooperation, doing more in terms of economic development, um, welcoming partnership with our friends in the region to work on these goals, to invest in improving the economic situation, to invest in the training, to invest on empowering the youth so that we can build really an atmosphere of peace. But we also have to remember that even for the Palestinians, okay, or maybe even especially for the Palestinians, okay, they need the security cooperation, and they need for their own purposes, as well for us in the region, to commitment to fight terror. And that remains something that has to be very strongly said and understand that those are all the alternatives. You, don't, you can't do both. I think that this is why the message that we're seeing from the, from the Abraham Accords, from the other progress that we will hope be made in the future, um, is something that really penetrates into Palestinian society, and they understand to embrace, and they demand their leadership. This is what we want. Uh, so far, I've been good and disciplined. I think Eddie will agree in sticking to the questions we shared with you, but now I have to deviate a bit. What would each of you and your countries want from the United States, which, of course, has been a partner in launching this thing a year ago, to further develop the Abraham Accords? We'll start with you. I think we have to collectively, collectively talk about the region. We have mm -hmm. to collectively talk about strategic issues, but we also collectively have to talk about trade. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, I think this is actually has begun. We are discussing and negotiating a free trade agreement with the state of Israel. Okay. Our estimates, things maybe 10 to 12 months, we'll get it concluded. But there's absolutely no reason how the U.S. should not be thinking about ways to plug into that free trade agreement. Just imagine free trade between Israel, U.S., UAE, to imagine technology transfer, imagine climate research, imagine space cooperation. There is so much to be had if we expand our bilateral channels into a trilateral channel with the United States, whether on strategic issues or on business and economic issues. So I think these are, you know, the... That's the first thing I think of right now. Sure. Ambassador Lupin. To start out, I think that there needs to be um, a, a continuous commitment from the United States to acknowledge the accords and to move forward, um, no matter who's in office. Uh, this is a uh, once-in-a-lifetime in a, in a kind of uh, deal, and uh, I think a lot has been achieved in one year, and a lot can be achieved in the years to come, and the U.S.'s involvement is critical. Uh, I also think that there are opportunities of multilateral uh, approaches where if the United States was to look at ways in which uh, member nations can 
either get access to some of the, the, the services that the United States has with other countries or that has, let's say it's more trade related, mm -hmm. um, but I think there are advantages in which we can uh, kind of create a special group of countries <coughs> in which they're getting a, uh, a special treatment from the United States, uh, whether it's in trade or other areas. Uh, that will probably keep the ball rolling. It's going to have more countries joining. And uh, that's the ultimate, uh, one of the ultimate goals of the Accords is to enlarge the group and for those members to, to benefit out of uh, each other. Uh, I, I totally concur with, with my colleagues here. And obviously understanding um, what are our concerns what are the shared concerns or recognize that it's not just one of the countries speaking about that concern, but if you hear it, you may hear the same tune in multiple capitals in the region and understand that and then figure out how way, the best way to address it, promote it, maybe to create cooperation on some of, on some of these issues, to hear what it is that the countries want and to, to be in tuned with what it is that we want. And then I think also from our perspective, very, very important, and I would, I would almost say that it's probably important for, for Bahrain and UAE to extend it, mm -hmm. to show a commitment not only to what exists, but a commitment to moving it forward. Right? That how to bring others on board, how to create a more normal region, because we talk now today about two Gulf countries, but the potential is obviously larger than that. And I think that that commitment is something that we would hope can be um, extended and empowered to do in the coming years. This is a key uh, issue. Uh, two of you have just raised it. It's also a delicate issue. So I'm going to pose the question in two ways. To expand this extraordinary coalition, if you will, they say misery likes company, while success likes company more. Uh, I'll give you two questions related to that, and you can answer uh, whichever one you want or both. Uh, which countries do you see would be the next candidates to join? Or, alternatively, what conditions do you think the Abraham Accords members, which includes the United States as one of the original signatories, should set that would encourage other countries that may or may not be named to join. Uh, you can do it either way, uh, Yusuf. So the truth is, I don't, I don't know if there's any particular countries that are engaged right now with the United mm -hmm. States, or at least considering this. I don't know. I know in the past, uh, at least right after we made our announcement, there were several other countries. I'm not sure if they want to be known, so I'm not comfortable you know, the, disclosing who they are. But several countries came to us and said, hey, how did this happen? What did you do? How did you negotiate? So there was interest. I, I think because there's new governments here, there's new governments in Israel, people kind of wait and see mode. But I'll say what I've said back then, which is if you really want other countries to consider this seriously, first, it's on us and, mm -hmm. and the United States including, included to demonstrate that this has been a successful experiment. Right. Right? To say that, hey, this is really working. This is good for the region. This is good for the societies in the region. This is good for peace. So we have to do that, and we have to do that consistently, and we have to do that, like Sheikh Abdullah said, in a very bipartisan fashion. That's what will get other countries' attention, mm -hmm. is that this is being welcomed by everyone in the United States. That's a great way to encourage countries who are thinking about it, and it's also a great way to discourage countries who are. Who are. So it, we have to show that we are all in and that this has proven to be a successful model. Clearly, as you have heard, while the Abraham Accords were signed a year ago, the process they have triggered is gaining momentum and is only just beginning. We'll follow the consequences of the Accords closely on upcoming episodes of PodBridge. We hope you'll join us as we do. 
This has been Podbridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the Podbridge Project, follow us on Twitter at UAE USA United or visit our website at podbridge.com.